Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ooh. Dogs. Sorry, Ned. (laughs) Well, if I can concentrate, I'll do the intro, but dogs are making dog noises. Hello. Typical. Anyway. Uh, hello and welcome. It's another animal today. Hello and welcome to the Never Strays Far Girona Dolphin Special. I'm Ned Bolting. And I am David Miller. David, where on God's good earth are we and what, for all the love of cycling, is this podcast actually going to be about? Uh, this is going to be a mixture because we're sitting uh, at out front of my house, actually. Hence the, if you can hear the little gnarling dogs in the background, I apologise. Gnarling? No, that's kind of what they're doing, isn't it? Um, yeah, your, your dogs oh, are kind of throw something at savaging them. each other, really. Is that normal? It is normal, and it's, but it's really it's super normal when you try to do something, they do something. Yeah. Two seconds. All right. Let's start again. Well, now David's is just going off and disciplining his dogs, Guinness and Sandy. And uh, it worked for about a second, and... That's a little, little... And now they're coming over to say hello to me. Hi, dogs. <laughs> okay, yeah, so we're... Uh, this is all going uh, really well. That's really no, well. I can, t- I can fill in the view a little bit, because yeah. over, we're sitting on your, your, your sort of front patio area in front of your house, which is amazing, in the middle of absolutely nowhere, to the north of Girona in Catalonia. And I can see uh, the Rocacorba climb, of which much has been written not least by you, down the years, and much has been written, ridden as well. That's quite good, isn't it? Much has been written, and, and much has been ridden. Uh, indeed. Yeah, I, it's actually a little bit of serendipity, because it has. it's a climb that has meant so much to me over the years, and I think most professional cyclists, but particularly me, because I created a club of a, well, crikey, over a decade now called Vela Club Rock Corber. And yeah, I'm still waiting, by the way. My application to follow you, you on Twitter oh, really? is still pending, and oh, it's wow. been 10 years. Yeah, I should probably go and have a look at that. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, Ned. That's all right. A lot's changed in 10 years. You can get in now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame that I could really stop checking it. But yeah, so our house is, what, about 15, between 15, 17 kilometres north of, of Girona, towards Banyoles, where the lake is, and that's where the foot of Rock Corba is. And we have a wonderful view, and we're very fortunate, and it's been especially a... a, a a blessing this past year with yeah, lockdown because it's actually just been so serene and and what a part of the dogs yeah um so that's so that's part of this, the so this podcast is it might be a bit longer than other podcasts it should be if we do it right yeah. because we've got so much to talk about yeah um yeah because the reason that so what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to, between us, try and piece together a little bit about Girona, actually, which is kind of an amazing story, both the up-to-date current story of it's, you know, the reason that you're here partly and the, the whole connection with cycling is interesting in itself, but also drilling back into its thousands of years of history, about which we are now fully, fully informed, mm-hmm. armed with facts, yeah, replete with information, uh, which we'll disseminate throughout this podcast. But equally, the, the actual reason that I'm here is because for various COVID reasons, as bonkers as it seems, 
the only way to kind of make our Dauphiné commentary work for ITV was for me to come straight from Milan to Girona and pick up commentary on the Dauphiné. So the irony being throughout the Giro, (laughs) every single day we got up at (laughs) six o'clock in the morning on dodgy internet links and made a podcast happen, Farfalle, which Mm. is pretty remarkable. I was thinking about this morning, I was like, that was remarkable that we we were even doing it. And then put us in the same country in the same room (laughs) with plenty of time and we actually couldn't be bothered. (laughs) We're just too tired. We're too tired from podding. Which is quite funny, but um, but what we what we will do is kind of uh, throughout this special Never Straight Far Girona Dolphin special, um, we will we'll kind of like do a very schematic and erratic recap of uh, the first seven stages at least of the Dauphiné because we're recording this Sunday morning and we're about to go and commentate on stage eight, aren't we? Yeah, and we can always do a little uh, soundbite at the end to add to that because by the time you read it, we will have watched it, yeah. read it, listened to this. Yeah, so, yeah. So yes, that's the plan. But but yeah, and I think it's it's been strange for me as well because uh, in the sense that I've been commentating on my own here for the last year on and off yeah and so it's been uh, and it's quite for- I guess that's probably why we were able to do the podcast like we do in different things because we're used to doing it remotely now yeah so it's kind of it's almost it's actually, I think it's in- actually almost helped us it's made us better at it because we have to do the pauses the waits you have to really listen be more considerate of your much more considerate Co co presentee or presenter or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, the, the dolphin, dolphin, and probably just so people understand why you call it the dolphin, is because well, what just obvious, sounds it? like sounds dolphin. a bit like it. Yeah, but it's also connected, isn't it? Like the, I think. I mean, a French. We discuss it. I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure, but dolph- you can take it. A dolphin is dauphin, isn't it? Yeah, but this is dauphiné. Absolutely. But the reason that the duchy of the dauphiné was called the dauphiné is. It, I think he does. Oh, well, there you go. And, the I Dauphi- take it back. and I think I'm right in saying that the Dauphiné was a bit like, I was trying to explain this to your friend Mikkel the other night, wasn't it? That, yeah. that the Dauphiné was the um, part of France, the region, the duchy of France, to which the heir apparent to the throne of the kingdom, I'm speaking to sound like Paul Chirwin now, aren't I? Um, was uh, given. Is that a sentence? So, so basically, it's like the way it's like Prince of Wales. It's like the Prince of Wales. So, the French equivalent to Wales is the Dauphin, the Dauphin, the Dauphin, the Dauphin. And, uh, that region. And his and his his, his duchy was called the it's Dauphin. Your God-given birthright as heir to the throne to have that title bestowed upon you at yeah. birth yeah. or near to. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, very good. Um, we could start straight off. Stage one. With stage one. Yeah. Stage one was good. But I, no, uh, I, want to, I, want, I want to be able to say, I didn't see stage one, David. I didn't see any of it. Oh, yeah, you didn't. Tell me about it. Oh, so oh, stage one nice. was good. Yeah, I know. We t- so we, we turned on and there were three riders up the road. And it, we knew it was going to be, because the Criterion de Dauphiné, so everyone understands, it's it's kind of like a mini Tour de France. They compress three weeks into to one week. It's always been the format of the race. So you'd have, in the old days of Tour de France, you'd have the first week, which would be uh, very flat, sprinty. Then you'd have the middle week where you'd have a time trial, things get defined, then a summit finish. Then actually a lot would happen in that second week, then the third week would calm down. The Dauphiné has always been, it starts off with three stages sprinting, arguably very hard sprinting. That's the the point and why very few of the big name sprinters go. You have a time trial in the middle of the race, which sets the tone for GC. Then you have a couple of kind of Massy Central, very middle mountain stages. And then it finishes with classic Alpine 
horrible stages. So the first three stages is always a bit of a weird one because people come into it. There are sprinters who are opportunists and seeing an opportunity to do something because the biggest names aren't here. But that comes at a price because you come with a GC team and you come into a race where there aren't many other sprinters or teams who are going to control the race. And that's exactly what we saw happen on stage one. What normally would have been a relative formality for a peloton's control, they couldn't control this three-man breakaway. And with 50Ks to go, they suddenly had two, two and a half minutes, these three riders, and they've been off the front all day. But this young man, Brent Van Moor, who has been christened Thomas de Ghent by... Thomas de Ghent. Which I always love that sort of thing. Um, Have you ever amazing. called anyone the new David Miller? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think oh, you God. should on social I, media. I, should. I couldn't do I wouldn't put that on anybody. <laughs> like, yeah, not even my worst enemy. Um, but yeah, it's so Brent Van Moore was just so good. And what happened was that you had this Cat 2 climb, I think about 40Ks from the finish, 50Ks from the finish. And it was Bahrain Victorious who have Sonny Cobrelli. And again, he's one of these sprinters, and I, I, I always apologise before I say this, but a kind of a, a second rate or a, or a plan B sprinter. He's not up there with the fastest in the world, but he's very good. And so he was obviously as an opportunist here, but his team aren't used to riding and controlling the race. So with 50 days to go, they just hit out so hard in his climb, eight into the gap, just thinking they just shut it all down. Then other teams would jump on the front and 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 just get it all the job done. They fried their whole team on this climb, closed it all down, and then the gap came down, and then Brent Van Moore saw an opportunity because he must have heard that the team that was chasing blew up. And then Ineos Grenadiers took over, which was very telling because that was the first time you realised that Ineos Grenadiers are here all guns blazing, and we haven't seen that in a, in a while. Obviously, they had, had a great Giro, and they were coming. And I, I've spoken about this as well in the past. That on the same day... Egan Bernal's winning the Giro d'Italia. You've got a full team here. You've got Garant Thomas, who's going to try and win the, the Tour de France. They're coming in with force. And they don't have Lucro. They don't have Chris Froome anymore. It was Garant Thomas, I think, very much road captaining, calling the, calling the shots. And he was just taking control of the race. So the moment Bahrain Victorious couldn't do it, Ineos Grenadiers did, but they weren't interested in the stage. No. They ended up catching the two riders got dropped. Brent Van Moor just dro- rode away from them on the, the final climb, which is a cat three, I think. And But then it, the ride he did was just immense because mm. it started to get pretty heated. Pine teams started panicking. Other teams were like, actually, no, we're not going to catch them. They couldn't. They could barely put a dent into his time. Then he finished nearly a minute uh, ahead of everybody else. But that was great. And he looked awesome. And I do genuinely think he's a rider that's going to be, we're going to see a lot more of in the future because he is a newer human, isn't he? He's what, 22? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 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 And, um, but for me, that, that was interesting. It was also interesting seeing that the sprinters team didn't have the firepower and the Ineos Grenadiers were dominating. And the second tell was that Jumbo Visma didn't give a hoot about what was going on. They were scattered across the peloton. It's mm. almost like they're on holiday here. Yeah. That was stage one. Yeah, yeah. Talking about being on holiday here, I've been kind of semi on holiday here. I must admit, I've had a very, you know, the, the contrast between packing your bags every day and driving on 300 kilometers across Italy every single day and just staying put and commentating for a week in the Hotel Carlemani in mm. or Carleman. Carleman. It took three days until you figured out what it was. But then that yeah, came. I just went, yeah. oh, it's Charlemagne, isn't it? Yeah. I couldn't figure it out because 
um, there's a, a wonderful tapestry ha- that hangs in the lobby of the hotel is, yeah. that has on the on the left hand side it has scenes um, depicted from Girona, the, the outline mm. of the cathedral and everything, the old town, and on the right it has Aix la Chapelle or Aachen, mm. um, and that kind of like sowed a seed. Why why Aachen? Is it twinned with Aachen in some way? And then I realised, okay, Charlemagne. So Charlemagne, can you say Charlemagne to me because I actually am a little bit of a I have a lack of history on Charlemagne. Well, Charlemagne was the first kind of um, <laughs> well, Charlemagne was. Oh, very this is all coming together. Charlemagne was the first um, king of Europe, essentially, right? Kind of re- so the you know, united. Um, no, no, nothing to do with the Habsburgs. Holy Roman, Holy Roman no, Empire. No, but instituted what then became the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Okay. Eventually, the Holy Roman Empire. He was the first king of Europe. He re- he united huh. he united the tribes, and yeah. then in the you know in uh, uh, the Iberian Peninsula. He drove out the Moors. Uh, so was his so, so Philip the first, Philip the second, who built long the time later Escorial. Uh, oh, don't know, don't know. I think I thought you're going to jump straight to Philip the fifth because that's no, 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 key no, no, no. I'm just like coming to points now. Okay, yeah, because yeah, I know that Escorial in Madrid, or however you say it, was Philip the first or second, and he was he was just a complete sounds very much like Charlemagne. So I don't know whether he inherited that responsibility. Well. Another thing about Charlemagne, <laughs> I'm just going to blank that because I can't. Yeah. I can't <laughs> but another thing about Charlemagne is that um, when he died, uh, he kind of partitioned in his in his inheritance Europe, and he had three key descendants whose names I can't remember, except one was called Lothar, right? Mm. And um, to to one of his descendants, he gave the Frankish lands, which we now think of as France, right? Mm. Everything kind of like. Yeah, everything looks like a bit like France on the map now. And to another of his descendants, he gave all of kind of Austria and, Ger- and Germany. And that, that and then there's this strip, this problematic strip that runs all the way from, um, if you like, Rotterdam down to Venice, hmm. which is, um, that is the fault line in European history that right. arguably has still not been resolved, but that led to the conflagrations of the 19th and 20th centuries. It was Charlemagne's little Easter egg Loth- for the future. Lotharingia. You know, they didn't know what to do that. And that's been the contested lands of Alsace-Lorraine and all the way, you know, all the way down. Thanks, Charlemagne. Yeah, thanks, Charlemagne, for that. Yeah. But we'll come to that. I hope that you've really learned something from that and that you're not... Oh, they go, David, there's going to be people just jumping up and down with fury or lack of understanding of Charlemagne. But, <laughs> but anyway, okay. I've been staying in the Hotel Charlemagne. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and from the Hotel Charlemagne, every morning I've either been going for a run or a little walk. And um, only about three days ago did I discover... Cause your walks instinctively when you come to Girona take you over the river into the old town because mm-hmm. that's that's focal point very distinct yeah. and very separate from the new town which is on the other side mm-hmm. of the river which isn't particularly new it's a lot of it's 18th century isn't it yeah um and i thought i'd kind of figured out what the new town was all about branches of zara mm-hmm. cafes classic um mobile phone shops yeah you know nice but you mm-hmm. know relatively kind of familiar and ordinary yeah. feeling just mm-hmm. a nice town mm-hmm. um and then i stumbled across the the uh, Independent Square, which is... Plaza de Independencia. Which is beautiful, isn't it? It's very homogenous, yeah. 18th century mm-hmm. kind of quadrant mm-hmm. that, that we discovered used to be a convent. I didn't know that until we discovered it. Until yeah. we discovered it the other day. And in the middle of the, the square is a, is a 19th century... Um, a very kind of militaristic, almost uh, oh, memorial a, yeah, statue. Yeah, it's kind of call to arms, isn't it's it? call to arms, mm. which commemorates... Um, commemorate, what does it commemorate? 
that kind of the, the final siege, the siege that Girona won, the last the time, last that, time. The, that only time won, the only time that Girona ever won, ever beat the French. Yeah. And then the most mind-blowing fact... That was an amazing fact as well. This is Laura, our tour this guide. This is Laura, the yeah. tour guide, who's stuffed us with too much information yeah. that we only partially absorbed, yeah. often incorrectly. <laughs> but she said, and I asked her to say it a few times until I kind of like, yeah. oh, she really means this. She said that over the history of Girona, it was laid siege to by the French in various different guises over the centuries, 784 times. 700. I know. It's- and Girona beat them off once. Yeah. And that's the, the the whole reason when Trent is a walled city. So the river was essentially a pseudo wall. They built actually walls up from the river, then they built these very t- tall walls around it. But actually, if jumping, we've just jumped forward because we'll do this in this section. We'll just talk about the the origins of Drona. Was that one? That story comes down to which I didn't realise was it was a Napoleonic um, push to get Portugal. Yeah, that was amazing. That was amazing. And it's classic Napoleon tactics. Yeah. So he made a deal with the King of Spain. Yeah. Um, look, we're going to come through. We won't touch you. Yeah. But if you can give us right of passage through Spain, yep. we'll set up. We'll, we'll then go to Portugal. We'll take it over. We'll you give can you have sections. a bit of it. You can have sections of it. They you can have, and you have all you have access. Golf courses. Yeah. You'll be cool to go. The reason being that uh, at that time, Portugal was just dominating the ports. And in order to touch the, uh, go across the Atlantic, they'd yeah. have to come and dock in Barcelona. Or oh, down in the right, south, because right, yeah. Sevilla, et cetera, and all these different were controlling in Portugal. Sevilla was connected to Portugal politics. So Napoleon's push to then control Atlantic traffic and also the traffic from East India to the UK was to take Portugal. But what the Girona kind of Catalan crew saw that they're coming here, they've brought 5,000 men to Girona. Yeah. We now have to look after them. Ostensibly en route to en Portugal. Route. And they started doing this. Napoleon's genius started putting troops all over Spain. Yeah. in places saying no we're just preparing yeah not, actually, not moving on very fast not just moving on very fast, but yeah. it's going to be here for a few weeks yeah months and, but actually they just started to take over Spain yeah and Girona decided no we're not going to do with deal with that yeah and there was a huge uh, there as you said the final siege they actually won but it couldn't have been pretty yeah and and from that point on Napoleon did eventually win by the way uh it, then the wall started no, to come down. Yeah, that bit. Yeah. Eventually lost, though, didn't he? Eventually lost. It, yeah, we know as that. Always. Yeah, but, um, yeah. But yeah. But so the, that was a tactic. That kind of ta- Napoleon tactic was like Chris Froome pretending, feigning for King of the Mountains totally. points. That's exactly what he was doing. Feigning for King yeah. of the Mountains points. It's yeah. a tactic you can only use once when it's, he attacked into Lucian. It's a big move. Big move. Yeah. You get it right. It's brilliant. Get it wrong. Yeah. It's just a hiccup. Yeah. And now it's just a statue in the middle of Independence Square. Mm. But that that then goes back. Uh, We'll go to stage two, shall we? Let's do stage two. Um, <clears throat> talking about Austro-Hungarian Empire shortly, weren't we? Yeah, we were, yeah. And there was an... This is a brilliant link. <laughs> this is a brilliant segue, David. And an Austrian on stage two was starting to build an empire. I don't know where Hungary fits in. It doesn't... Really, oh, no, there is a Hungarian rider in the race, isn't there? Barnabas Peak. I used to know um, Bedrogi. It cost me World Championship, Bedrogi. Did he? Yeah. Oh, he works with Jan Ulrich at the 2001 Lisbon World Championships in the time trial and I lost by six seconds. Right, you know, it's fine. I'm over it. You're okay. Right. <laughs> Lucas Pustelberger, who is um, a rider like Tony Gallopan, who's really active, isn't he? He's either working on the front or he's attacking off the front. He's not like a guy you never see in a bike race. Mm. And this is going back three or four years. I find he's a commentator's nightmare because I can't pick him. Uh, he's a little bit Gallopan. He's Gallopan, right? Mm. And what working with Pete Kenyuk over the last couple of years in commentary when he comes in and does a little shift so you can have a lunch break, mm. Pete's really good at picking 
Pustelberger. Pustelberger. I'm quite jealous of his ability to go. He yeah. just knows it straight away. He goes, Pustelberger. Yeah, I, 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 he's still a bit of a, a, a change, changeling to me. Yeah. Shapeshifter. Yeah. But great ride. And he won the stage. And that was two days in a row. And they both... Same thing happened there. 17 kilometres. Yeah. And or, yeah, it was exactly 17, 17 kilometres. Yeah. 10 more time trial. Yeah. And, but what was interesting, the same thing, Bahrain Victorious hadn't learnt from the previous day. Yeah. They did exactly the same thing. They they tried to be a bit better, but then still burnt through. And it was Ineos Grenadiers once more that came and took over. And it was, you were starting to immediately on stage two see the shape. And it was, okay, this time last year at the Dauphiné, Ineos Grenadiers were on the back foot. And it was Jumbo Visma who were just, everyone was like, why are you riding so hard in the front? Why are you doing this? What's been interesting with Ineos Grenadiers on stage one and stage two, they weren't riding too hard. They were just bossing the race and just yeah. filling the gaps in. Yeah. But Postelberger, his ride was fabulous. Mm. And what was great in the in the post-race interview, um, it was the first time I've ever encountered him, kind of actually the person rather than the changeling on a bike. And what a character. Well, he never gets interviewed. That's, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. You know, he never normally gets interviewed. Yeah. And he had his hat on and he had all his fringe sticking out mm. and he had a look to him and he had an attitude and Bit a confidence. Oh, yeah, total swagger. For the second day in a row... Riders who had done reconnaissance at the Dauphiné yep. won the stage. Yeah. It's really interesting. That was it, the post-race interview. Uh, uh, Lucas, was this a surprise for you? Nope. No. Uh, nah, I knew like, this would happen. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. Yeah. For me, it's no surprise. I knew this happened. Um, so fair play. Yeah, it was good, wasn't it? Yeah. It wasn't his finest moment. That was still to come. Um, but the other feature, well, a couple of other features of stage two. One was... Um, DSM riders kept attacking. It was my first, so I went, it was my first day of commentating at the Dauphiné yeah. and I was still seeing the Giro pe- mm. uh, Peloton and I was really struggling. Bardet, looking for Bardet. I was looking for Roman Bardet and um, the Hugh Carthy and people. Yeah. DSM riders kept attacking and if you look at the start list of the DSM riders, they're not household names at this race. <laughs> well, and, and, and let's just they take kept, a step back and say there's not many household names at no, the No, it's Dolphins. a weird start list. Yeah. It's, a, it's a weak start list yeah. if we're perfectly honest. Mm. But that, in a way, it's made for quite an interesting race. But anyway, um, they kept attacking in the final 10k, didn't they, to try and, and I couldn't pick them. I kept calling them by the wrong name. And then we were, we were, a couple of days later, we were, we met up with Mitch Docker, didn't we? Mm. And I said, um, I can't remember, we got onto the subject, but I said, what about DSM? And he goes, I won't try the Aussie accent, but he said, yeah, they're just like, he had came up with a great quote, didn't he? We might so have they're, it. All, they're all like, they're all like, no, we were just walking along the street. Uh, I don't think we were yeah, recording yeah. it. He said, they're yeah. all like under 23 riders, aren't they? <laughs> They're all like under twenty three. They ride like under twenty three riders, except they're really good. <laughs> it's like they're really good under twenty three riders. They beat you. It's like they're so annoying. <laughs> so, it's always attacking, but they're so strong, <laughs> and they win. Yeah, well, I didn't on this occasion. But you developed a new sort of um, man crush. You've you've moved on from um, you've dumped Remco. A little oh, bit. Well, poor, just oh no, I'm on a break. P- p- yeah, and and you've kind of like you've discovered Matt Holmes in your life. You've welcomed yeah, Matt, Matt Holmes, Holmes is in. into your He's life. In. I like you, Matt Holmes. Are you all about Matt Holmes? So now? Matt Holmes is an interesting one. So Postelberger, etc. They don't seem to have much character on the bike. In yeah. the sense, they just get it done. Yeah, and he gets it done. And he's great ride off the bike. You're like, whoa, you're magical. But Matt Holmes on the bike. He just radiates like charisma. It's just what what are you? And he seems to just have so much attitude and. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed watching him race because it's, and I think I said it's kind of Vuckler-esque. Yeah, it's, it's a great comparison. It's yeah. kind of cinematic the way he races. He knows it's a show and he's putting on a show and probably not even aware he's doing it, but it's it's fun to watch him. 
because you're like, well, I can see what you're going through. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, I, I don't think I said this in commentary. I think I just told you, but I remember doing an event with him years ago when he, he must've been 20 or 21, still riding in continental level at, you know, Madison Genesis back in the UK. And I, I think I did their team launch or something. I can't remember. I was interviewing a bunch of their riders on the stage. And I said to Matt, I said, Matt, are you, what kind of rider do you see yourself turn, you know, developing into in the, in the years to come? And he went, fat GC racer. <laughs> remotely fat but he's, he's just crazy he said I, I like to be a gc racer but i'm a bit fat okay that's great but and then yeah and then he i remember i remember one edition we were commentating tour of yorkshire together and he kept getting moves and attacking and stuff and i kept not picking him as well yeah and i got a lot of grief from the official madison genesis twitter feed about just failing to identify matt holmes who'd shapeshifted but anyway he's had a really good dolphin hasn't he yeah he's got one day today uh, stage eight where he could potentially reclaim the jersey so yeah nice so we, we just mentioned Mitch Docker shall we introduce the world to Wallball what, why not His, so Wallball is an invention of Mitch's well let him explain because yeah. he explains it and then then you can hear a little bit as well of, of um, me and David both, both playing Wallball and David did rather well where are we going now Mitch well, we're going to a wall called Graffiti Wall. They're really original names because it's pretty much whatever's on the wall, you call it that. So this wall's got all graffiti on it. Um, and we're sort of near the Red Market. This is a good wall because, well, there's trees here which add an element. There's also... Well, they're in the game. Yeah, they're in the game. Um, that's the thing with wall ball. Every wall has its own characteristic. Um, another wall we call Pig Face Wall. It's a pig face on it, you know. Um, and that has like a garage door in it, so that provides different elements to it. So the game of Wall Ball, there's a whole podcast in it. We could talk for hours and hours, but we've arrived at graffiti already, so let's maybe have a tap. Uh, I, I've, very good. I think I may have dabbled briefly a couple of years ago, had a tap, but it's um, it's, it's an iconic game. Yeah. But it's, it's the Dockers. They're, they're legends for it. Mitch and his brother. Do you want to give it a bit, bit of background, Mitch? I'm not, yeah, I'm going to, I've, the idea is I would almost, I started the Girona chapter. And the idea is that you start your own chapter wherever you live. So. Wait, wait. Straight away, chapter. Chapter. Yeah. Okay. So where are you from? I'm from London. I think there's already a London chapter. No, but he'd have to be Lewisham. Yeah, yeah. Lewisham yeah. chapter. Exactly. And you, you, you break it down, exactly. So yeah. there's no, like, Sydney chapter. Where my brother lives, he's the, the Redfern chapter. That's the suburb where he lives. And it's essentially school, boy, down ball, wall ball, whatever you want to call it. Um, and Spalding got behind it, and they made an actual ball. What? Wall that ball. is a wall ball ball? Yeah. An official wall ball ball. WBI. Wall ball international. High bounce. Do you um, get different, d- different degrees of... No. It's no, just going to got one. size fits all. Okay. Um, and Kirk started this up with his mates just in his, in his alley outside where he lives, Well Street. It's an amazing alley. It's perfect for wall ball. It's got this... It's on a slight hill and the alley and the wall has got different dynamics on it they've got like a sudoku 
they call it. It's like a square with like all these different rocks. So if it hits it, it's like a Sudoku just randomly comes off in different directions. So you're aiming for it sometimes. But also on the angle, you can get this thing called deli slicing. And so like as you're getting on this angle, like you'll be playing with another player, it slowly goes into this up and down rally. And how like how thin you can slice it off the wall is like a deli slice. You know what I mean? Like it's only nipping the wall oh, as it goes through. Exactly delicatessen. So it's good. like uptown yeah. deli and downtown deli. If you're uptown, you're just slicing it down to the downtown deli. The guy who's on the downhill and trying to get it back and forward. You know, you know, like in tennis when you get in those situations where you sort of like get locked in and you're like okay I'm just playing yeah. forehand I'm playing forehand it's like yeah. alright whoever's just going to bust here yeah. you know no one's going to go break to the back end um, and uh, so that's sort of like the deli that's Well Street but then like I was saying there's so many different courts so many different walls and every wall has its element there is no right or wrong wall um, you create your own rules to a degree on your wall and whoever has the wall makes there's certain boundaries and rules to that wall. How do you, go, how do you win? So how you win? There's there's three styles of game. There's five down. Yep. So you start with five players. Uh, well, you start with any amount of players, sorry, and you have five points. When you make a mistake... You lose a point. You lose a point until oh, you nice. five down. That's good. That's what we'll play. Cool. Then there's singles, one-on-one, up to, say, 11. Yeah. And then there's doubles. Doubles is like table tennis in terms of you've no no it's not like table tennis sorry it's anyone can play okay but it's team for team but the confusing thing is calling you know what I mean like so you and I are a team Dave and the chair are another team and you know you're playing there and you've got to choose your positions you just got to make sure someone from your team gets it back um pretty much like tennis doubles yeah except it seems a bit more confusing when everyone's on the same side of the court, if you know yeah. what I mean. Tennis right. is easy because you're that side of the court, we're this side of the net. Mitch, Got it. Is it a contact sport? <clears throat> there is what we call, there's two other things you can call hold. So hold is like there's someone about to walk through the court and you just go hold. Hold, like timeout. Yeah, stop. Oh, you mean a member of the public? Yeah. Civilian. Yeah, civilian, civilian car wherever your court mm. is like pig face has cars coming through getting pig into face. that store mm. um, so you just go hold there's a car yeah. coming yeah um, there's also dual so there's a point where like for instance two guys see it it's going to drop short and two guys just don't go for it oh nice so it's so like closest to the ball is out normally yeah. it's like well whose was that and then a third player might go well those both players might go dual yeah. You or me, everyone will clear off the court. You or me will duel for that point. Oh, what? It's and like dance-off. And then you just go, whoever loses, go, well, it was clo- easily yeah, yeah. yours. Wait, you know, like, wait, obviously. Wait, you, have, you both have to call duel. What if one of you calls duel and the other one goes, nah, don't see it as Then a duel. the public go, nah, dude, it's a duel. The public? Like yeah. the rest of the right. The rest of the, oh, no, the rest of the players. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like, it's just yeah. like, what? You're afraid of duel? Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah. no. I was definitely my point. I'll show you. <laughs> you know? Oh, I love this. And then what else is there? So, yeah, if there is any kind of conflict um, or sort of misinterpreted points, duel normally settles up. That's that's all you do. You just go, all right, fuck it, duel it. You know? Let's yeah. do it. I want to see Ned play. Oh, there's also, like, obviously, so you can't hit it on the full on the wall. Um, it's... 
down first. Okay. So you hit it, it bounces on the ground, hits the wall, comes up. Then you can hit it on the full okay. or let it bounce once. All right. But we'll... It's self-explanatory so when you, you play it. Yeah. Serve by smacking it down first. Yep. Basically, the serve is a gentleman's okay. agreement. Okay. So there's no like dicey. Just grab the ball and skim yeah, it. I hate that. Yeah. Like squash. Yeah. Good players just dump it. Into yeah. The it's just like start the game. Yeah. Gentleman's agreement serve. Yeah. And if it's dicey serve, it's like whoa. Oh, that's disrespectful. Re- yeah. yeah. Reserve. Okay. You know? yeah. All right. Let's give it a go. It's two right-handers playing. Oh, I oh, got it. Oh, it's coming wide. It's going wide. Uh, oh, I got it. I was in the way. I apologize. So that was wall ball. And um, inspired by wall ball, I have gone and bought a load of wall balls for our Tour de France. I can't wait for that. For I... our Tour de France team. Um, let's crack on because this is already quite a long podcast, isn't it? Yeah. Um, should we go to, uh, should we go to stage three? Let's go to stage three. Yeah. Colbrelli. So finally, Bahrain get it right, don't they? And Colbrelli beats Aaron Buru quite comfortably in mm. the end. What I want to know from you about sprinters like Sonny Colbrelli, David, is what? Why? I mean, he's an uphilly sprinter, isn't he? Mm. He's always been an. I think yeah. he did, does he not won a stage of the Hatter Dam, mm, or come very maybe. close to in the past? Or he's, so, he's definitely one of those almost like a one-day sprinter in the sense he kind of is it gets over the climbs. Is he had that that trajectory in his early career where he looked like he was going to become one of the fastest sprinters, but then either he started training harder and climbs and changed, or but, but it's, these sprinters yeah. who do really well on on up, sharp uphill finishes, yeah, punchy, punchy finishes. Is that is that simply? Am I being oversimplifying? Say so he's just he's light. Uh, well, often it's because they've got a lot, they've got more fitness there. So they've got that unfortunate morphology and kind of physiology of being stuck between slow twitch and fast twitch. Right. So they can, uh, they can assimilate and they can accumulate quite a high workload and still have a jump, um, which is, which is great. Yeah. And like Philip Gilbert is a prime example, but yep. he's taken it to the extreme. Yeah. Colbrelli is like a kind of a, a, a sort of halfway house Gilbert. Half pint Gilbert. Half pint Gilbert. There's a lot of riders like that. And it's, it's, you can build a great career out of it, but it does mean you're never going to win the fastest sprints. You're never going to win the highest mountains. You're probably not going to win a monument. You ben won't Swift. win time trials. Ben Swifty. Swifty yeah. is exactly that. Yeah. 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 Kind of interesting. Mm. Well, um, uh, you know, I was pretty pleased for Colbrelli that he uh, kind of got it right in the day. They, you know what? Been... They, uh, on that day, they learnt it. They, they, the team rode well. Yep. They kind of, they, they figured it out and they, they made pretty bad mistakes stage one. They improved stage two, stage three, they nailed it. So, yep. Jamie Dussons toi, they got it, they got it right. And they weren't done yet either, he says, by way of a kind of teaser to, mm. you know, keep you hooked you. in. Yeah. To, yeah. Um, meanwhile, in Girona, mm. the Romans have moved in. Actually, we're so, kind of jumping around in time. Yeah, that's good. Now we're going back to the kind of cores because yeah. we'll, we'll do the core of origin, uh, Girona origin history, and then we can jump to why the professional cyclists moved here <laughs> as another oh, teaser. That's a big span of yeah. history. Yeah, another but teaser. It was, uh, Two thousand years ago, when the the Via Augusta, which was the the road that linked Rome to its to its all its different outposts, the big ones, and the one that was at Iberian Peninsula, came right through. Well. It, it wasn't Drona. It, became it created Drona. Drona. It created Drona because the Via Augusta, the, the smallest gap, the closest gap on on that corner of Spain where Perpignan is now in France, well, France, Perpignan, and coming through the 
very foothills of the Pyrenees. You squeeze through there and you come down here. And this is the shortest way to avoid the coastline. So this was the most direct line into the Iberian Peninsula is directly through Girona. And that's why Drona exists, because it was the Roman Empire that built Via Augusta. So one of the approach roads to what is now the cathedral is dead straight, isn't it? Mm. And that is the, that is the original road. And it leads up to, yeah, as you say, the cathedral that dominates mm. the skyline of Girona, that of course was at first a Roman temple. That's the highest bit yeah. of land overlooking the river. Exactly, because they put their original forts and then temples at the highest point. Temple being probably just an excuse to have a fort there, um, yep. because it meant the highest point on the, each passage of the Via Augusta. They put their high the forts at the highest point. Yep. And so that's where it started, and that's where the cathedral is today. And that's now known as um, uh, Forza, that road. That little cobblestone road that leads up, and it's very straight up to the cathedral and down the other side. And where the cathedral is, yeah, and the, the cathedral yeah. itself. While while we're talking about it, let's just talk about it a oh, bit here because mind bending. You know, when I my first walk into Girona, I, I think I mean you just instinctively you walk into the old town, which isn't very big, is it? Mm. But but you still can get lost in it. Yeah, um, you instinctively, without even knowing you're doing it, without looking at a map, you just end up at the cathedral because yeah. it's kind of you're drawn there, aren't you? The, the lot of the alleyways through the Jewish quarter and everything we'll talk about lead you to the the cathedral which i think is a masterpiece i think it's an absolutely it's, it's unlike you know it's, very, the, the it's kind of monolithic stone from which it's been made is very yeah. light colored almost mm-hmm. white almost and, what was uh, really interesting again was laura was showing us around which i'd never really considered is obviously it's hundreds of years to build something like that the fashions change oh yeah that's so interesting so the, it is this monolithic kind of exterior which well, I'm going to get everything wrong now because I've forgotten. Um, but you had the Romanesque, Baroque, Gothic. So no, no, the other way around. Romanesque, Gothic, Baroque. There you go. But it's got it. All, it's got because it took 600 years to build. It's got yeah. it all. So the interior has got a totally different uh, style to what the exterior is, and the exterior, exterior has almost got bolted on bits afterwards. Completely. The Baroque stuff is just have a bit yeah. of that because <laughs> it's because. Um, <laughs> Actually, it's been a real education for me with the Tour de France coming up, David, and yeah. you and me fumbling <laughs> around trying to judge architectural styles from helicopter shots. Yeah. Romanesque, right? Note to self. Romanesque is quite Octagonal. austere. Yeah. Octagonal. Yeah. Not gothic. The, the opposite of gothic. It's quite undecorative, mm. isn't it? Um, yeah. Inside, it would have been full of... Um, uh, depictions of the Bible, uh, you know, very florid, quite gory um, frescoes and stuff, which tell the story to an illiterate mm-hmm. uh, congregation, you know, without without um, script. But the architectural stuff, so the, the cathedral itself was like a block originally, mm-hmm. just a block without a tower. Then, then the Gothic era um, basically redesigns the entire interior, which I couldn't get to see because of COVID. It was shut actually, which is frustrating. But the interior is Gothic inside the cathedral. And then, as you say, by the time they finished it, things had moved on and the Baroque fluffiness um, became sort of critical. I just remembered a funny mini anecdote here, just to drop in here. Um, about four or five years ago, um, the Ryder Cup, the golf people were trying to... Were golfists. Pitch, golfists. They had sent a, a party down to Catalonia because they were investigating Girona becoming the Ryder Cup oh, at the PJ yeah. course, etc. So the mayor of Drone at the time was a friend, Carlos Puigdemont, who became the president, who's now in ex- exile. He was like, David, could you come and, and, and be my guest and kind of help me chaperone these Ryder P- Cup people around? What? I was like, yeah, sure. And so I was there and I was at the cathedral and I found myself having to blag my way around the cathedral with the whole Ryder Cup. Oh, I'd love to have oh, seen that. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> so I, would, I, I mean, the stuff that was coming out of my mouth was just next. Even Carlos 
Puigdemont, he came out and he was like, that was amazing. Thank you. I was like, I don't know if any of it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if you've gone around to the backs, so you're not allowed in. It's amazing when you see the backs. So it's got all the balustrades and it's got all the, it's just, it's, it's you can see the. Well, the, back, if, the back of the cathedral is extraordinary because yeah. it's built into the side of the hill. Yeah. So when you, there are walkways and everything, it's just like around the, around the back, these cobbled little paths that lead around the back mm. of the cathedral, and, and you climb quite steeply up. So you end up at this little point, this this garden that over almost overlooks the cathedral. You're looking down onto the roof, mm. sort of level, which is really unusual, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's, just, oh, it's, it's, it's just a fabulous funny. place. Um, um, which I'm trying to think of a segue to. Well, well, that was back in time. In fact, it was a, it was like a, a the whole thing was like a. That wasn't like a time trial at all, was it? Time trial is just when you race a bike yeah, really fast. It was a bit, but yeah. the time trial was was good because I, after the performance of Ineos Grenadiers in those first three days, it felt ominous. Going to smash it. Going to just destroy this. Yeah. And didn't happen. It didn't happen. No. And and it was, and we you were talking about 17k breaks in stage one, stage two. It was a 16.4 kilometer time trial, which is equates to almost exactly a 10 mile time trial, which is the bastion of British time trialing culture and scene. On that point, there was when I still used to present the Tour of Britain back in the day. Um, I I was quite you know work quite closely with the, the race organizer Sweet Spot, who actually. You know, I mean, I think it's no secret that bike races of any nature quite often start money gets paid to attract certain stars. And of course, in those years, there was none bigger than Bradley Wiggins. Mm-hmm. Um, and they tried and tried. They got every year Brad would turn up and he normally didn't race it very hard or he'd even climb off halfway round and, you know, constantly to the frustration of the race organisers. And then eventually, in order to get him to actually win the race, finally, <laughs> they had to put in a 10 mile time trial in the pouring rain in Nutsford or somewhere like that that was there just like oh can we just get this one over the line please it's kind of, it's kind of like what the Tour de France did as well to try yeah. and get a British winner yeah, <laughs> yeah. well that's, but that's standard for bike racing it is. isn't it what's, you what's the biggest the market exactly we need more sponsors we need more noise yeah make the course to, yeah to, oh. so this is yeah this is a 10 mile time trial yeah and it was um, it, watching it, Thomas was I, I was actually convinced he was going to crush it because he came through looked good but then I thought he was going to be negative splitting and there was no negative splitting. And it was, it was a case of, okay, so that's not going to happen. But watching the, the Astana riders and also Postelberger, it, it, where did, I think he finished 10th in the end, didn't he, Garrett Thomas? On the stage? Yeah, something like that. Eighth, yeah. tenth. Yeah. Which was uh, lackluster. Um, I mean, I don't think it, but we'll come on to it wasn't that lackluster. Well, your got, theory about that yeah, is very interesting. About that. But, uh, but yeah, so it was an interesting time trial and it did, uh, it uh, opened the race back up again because I think everybody was like, no, nah, here we go. Here we go. Yeah. yeah. But it didn't actually happen. But a, a little c- c- quirk of the way that television covers time trials, which are ostensibly very simple things, but end up being enormously complicated to commentate on every mm-hmm. time and quite difficult to televise because you've got at any given time, you've got 20 riders perhaps out on the course you haven't got 20 motorbikes and cameras and you're never going to have 20 motorbikes and cameras. Yeah. So you've got to decide which, where the helicopter, which riders get followed, you know. And they just about got away with it, French television, but they almost missed the fact that two riders, quite unexpectedly, had done the really uh, extreme negative splits. And over the mm. second half of the course, having posted moderate times, good, but moderate times at yeah. the first checkpoint, they were ripping up the second half. And also one and thing... that was Izagirian Lutsenko. And it's Gideon Lutsenko. It wasn't, and because of just what you were explaining, because what happens is the, the motorbikes, the TV motorbikes will kind of have 
well, you're going to do 10Ks or focus, then you turn, loop back, and then you go with another rider, and mm. you kind of got this rotation going on. Because of that rotation, it means that none of them were actually going to the finish line because they could, wouldn't be able to get back. So we only got to see the last 2Ks yep. for the last five riders. Where you've got static cameras yeah. cabled up that will catch every rider coming across. Yeah. But it's still... It's still the, the director's still going to cut up that live shot yeah. of the rider coming to the line. And we were like, and when we started seeing it, we were like, oh, wow, that's really but hard. Actually, that's really fast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, he's taken eight seconds yeah. at the best time. And yeah. it suddenly makes sense because the last K was uphill. Yeah, it's so so hard, hard, wasn't it? Really hard. But we hadn't seen any of that until. Yeah. And that's, a, uh, that's again, the when you're not at the race, you don't see those things. Yeah, it's true. Because you can have all the information, but you need to. Completely. We would have, if that had been at the tour, we would have ridden that. We would have we? ridden that and we'd have known it. Yeah. Oh, we know why you're negative assisting. We know somebody can bring time back there. Yep. And it's a very different experience. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was an amazing ride by Izaguri yep. and uh, Lutsenko. And then the yellow jersey went off. Lutsenko was in the hot seat. And um, at first, we didn't really, we weren't talking up his chances no. particularly. But the longer it went on, the more you thought, oh, hang on. Yeah. I think he was 13. He could lose 24 seconds. And in case of the first time check, just like... And he was about 13 seconds down at the first time check. You went, ooh, he'll probably get weaker. Yeah. So it probably won't happen, but you just thought he's just got a sneaking chance. But he's only four or five seconds off Geraint there, and you were like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is, he's done it. He's up there with the the contenders. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a phenomenal ride. Yeah. It was, um, and he did it by, what, a second and a half or something in the end, didn't he? Second Second. Yeah. Yeah. So there was one, one second separating Lutzenko and Pustelberger going into stage five. Dan, tell us a bit about your your passage through cycling because it's uh, the fact you're here, and I, I know Ned's uh, been with you and, and speaks highly of you, his time with you in Africa, and yet you've you've had this amazing journey through cycling and, and have made Drona home. Yes, so I've I've kind of gone a slightly unusual route. Um, spent most of my career in the lower continental ranks. Um, Obviously, from Namibia, went to university in South Africa. That's only really where I started racing. Then met an Italian who knew a Swiss man who knew a Swiss man who knew a Swiss man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Got myself into a Swiss amateur team in the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland. Basically raced the Italian amateur scene alongside... The Brits of the of the era of the under twenty three team, which were Gary and Thomas, Ben Swift, um, and so on. Um, eventually, two thousand eight became African champion in Morocco, which opened up another mm, very s- cool. strange door, um, which ended me up racing in the UK for Rafa Condor for three years. So mm. that took me from sunny Switzerland to rainy Manchester, <laughs> which was a little bit of a shock for an African. Um, moved down to Bristol where there was a little bit less rain, but not enough. <laughs> um, and I kept on bouncing around in the sort of continental teams until a a door opened thanks to racing the Tropicala Misa Bongo, which mm. is a big well, Africa's biggest UCI race besides the Tour of Rwanda now, um, where I met the owner of what is now Team Total Direct Energy, Jean-René Bernardot. Ah, oh, legends. Just while talking about the Tropicala Misa Bongo, mm. it's in Gabon, right? That is correct. Now, is it? Na- I think it's named after the president's deceased daughter. Is yes. that right? Yes. So I believe 
he is now the ex-president. Um, I'm not so up to date with <laughs> Gabonese <laughs> politics, <laughs> uh, but I believe two, a handful of years ago he was replaced. But at, for many years, the Gabonese president's daughter, uh, her name was Amisa Bongo, and she passed away. And the race was to commemorate her because she liked cycling. No, um, I love that. Yeah, that's, that's a really cool story. Absolutely fascinating race, you know, having mm. several French Tour de France level teams coming to Gabon, racing against the Gabon national team, Senegal, Burkina Faso, Eritrea. Mm. Um, and I raced it the first time on an African composite team, uh, which mm. was absolutely amazing. Three Ethiopians, two Zambians and myself. Mm. Uh, lots of fun and Tshabu Khamerai who is yeah. busy racing the Dauphiné now is, on yeah. Team Trek Segafredo yeah. he was my teammate there back in 2011 how do you, how do you, how do you say his name? No. Ooh, I say it <laughs> how do you say it? I say it Tshabu Khamerai Samu Khamerai how do you say it now? well I say it like that from now on I say it like <laughs> we've been like we've been like dodge that bullet yeah yeah I've always been confused that Samu <laughs> Yeah, that's very good. I'm, I could be wrong, but no, but that's, yes. it sounds a lot more probable than our previous <laughs> pronunciation, and we thought we were doing well. Mm. Um, to 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 focus back on because I think we could do numerous episodes with you, Dan. Is because much of this episode we've we've pivoted between the last week of the Dauphiné mm-hmm. and also Ned's first experience with Girona. Oh, um, yes, and what is it? that keeps bringing you back to Drona? Well, I had run out of luck in terms of contracts in 2017, like injuries that had been plaguing me for years kind of ended that dream. And 2018 started and I was a little bit of a sulky ex-professional cyclist living in professional cycling heaven um, where I couldn't escape this daily contrast of everyone around me is doing what I used to do and want to still be doing and I don't have a contract anymore so it was kind of time to leave and my wife being American America had some open doors and off we ran only to have our first child in California and very quickly realizing that's not the kind of place we want to be raising a family and we thought of coming back to Europe, Barcelona, Amsterdam, floating all kinds of ideas. And my wife became pregnant for the second time. And we looked at each other and said, we don't know another place we want to be other than Girona. Um, I'd kind of gotten over myself a little bit, not being <laughs> paid to ride my bike the way I used to. And we now had children to focus on. And Girona is such a beautiful place in so many different aspects and it's such a walking town. It's such an outdoorsy town. It's such a, it's sort of a very local Catalan town where the, the locals are sort of untouched in a certain way. Um, but there's also this international flair, um, a little bit lacking. My wife works sort of in the design world not as high up on that list as she'd wanted, but definitely for the kind of life we wanted to live outside, active, 
speaking multiple languages. It was kind of the top of a list of one, eventually. Strikes me as a kind of place that straight away you feel as a visitor, you feel that the people who live here, the inhabitants, whether they're international or, mm. or local, as you say, are self-evidently proud of the place that they come from. And um, that's not a given. That's not something that you feel everywhere in the world, is it? Uh, but uh, it, you do get that vibe in Girona. <laughs> Most certainly. I mean, if you look at the place, it's got so much going for it. It's got the history. It's got the architecture, the historical architecture. Um, but then it's also got this amazing culture, well, which comes with the history, obviously, but it's it's got the Spanish values. Um, you know, siesta comes with certain things. It means like living my life for, is more important than working for my life. Um, and having lived in the US for two years, where it was like, I'm willing to work my hands to the bone. And in Spain, it's like, I'm willing to work hard, but I need my siesta and I need my glass of wine. And it's kind of like, that's how I feel. I'm willing to work really hard, but at the end of the day, I want to have a smile on my face. After we've talked about the Jewish quarter in Girona. Yeah, the Jewish quarter is something that, well, I, I, again, on our tour, because uh, having you here, and I've often talked about this with, with everywhere, you can live somewhere for a long time, but unless you've got somebody that comes and you decide to look with fresh eyes, and so we got our friend Laura, who is a tour guide, to, to show us around, you, me, and Mikhail on Friday evening. And I learned so much because I know it's called the Jewish Quarter. That's the old, all the old town, all the tiny little streets next to the cathedral. I didn't really have any idea what it was or why it was called the Jewish Quarter um, because there's very little semblance left. There's a, a Jewish museum on Forza. There, there's no... Which is brilliant and beautiful, yeah, by the way. It's exceptional. Beautiful. Yeah. But what I learned from Laura was, was two things. It was only discovered in the 1980s. I think she said 70s. 70s, yeah. 70s. So that's when... So the 1970s, the Jewish quarter in the old, old town, which is, if you come to Drona now, it's it's beautiful, it's clean, it's just... It's it's a tourist attraction in many ways. As you said, it's like, it's like a real carcass on. Yeah. In the sense that it's not... It's fake. Not, it's not fake. <laughs> um but I didn't realize that the Jewish Quarter hadn't been discovered so late. And because the 1970s and 80s, which had come to as well, a book that I, I gave you, which is an, another book that you're going to read after that, it was a red light district. Yeah, It was filled with um, uh, houses of ill repute, drug dealing. It was pretty hardcore. You wouldn't go into the old town. And that had been part of the deterioration of the Franco period, where they just cut Drona off. And so the old town was quite a safe place for crime. Huh. So it became a criminal place. And a lot of what we learned was uh, the Jews, when they were banished from Spain, were given the option, four options, wasn't it? Three, op three options. Three options. Three options. It was convert, two leave, three die. die. And so the majority converted. Yep. Rightfully so. Uh, no, so, uh, yeah, majority just converted. But what they did with their conversion was eradicate themselves and almost go to the other extreme where uh, yeah. they would, on Saturdays, they'd work harder to prove that they weren't Jews. They they started uh, eating pork. Yeah. And just trying to really just amalgamate. It's very sad. 
And but, yet um, still secretly keeping alive their practices and their names, their it, Jewish names that they've exactly. been forced to leave behind. But what I didn't know, and this goes back again to the Romans, was around the cathedral, which had been a bastion, which over the time, because we skipped the Moors and all that bit and the fact that it, it had also been a mosque. Yep. Uh, because that was yeah, a passage true. of history. Worth mentioning, yeah. yeah. For hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Yeah. It was a, 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 a mosque. mosque. And it's interesting, the Moors, who took over, who ran the, who dominated the whole Iberian Peninsula for hundreds of years, yeah. never used force. Yeah, it was all by negotiation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's actually the Cathar castles, jumping around. I always <laughs> called them the Cathar castles. Actually, they were the Catalan border to protect the Moors entering into... Yeah. Because I didn't, I never understood why the Cathars would build castles. Yeah, but actually, it makes more sense that they were the Catalan. It was the Catalan border. Yeah, that's why it's called Catalonia. It was the castles of the castles of the land. Yeah. Um. Anyway, we're jumping around there. Yeah. But with the Jewish quarter, there was this law. I think around the Roman temples or the Catholic Church, uh, the church within ninety meters, ninety steps, no crime could happen, which is a really weird thing to say. Yeah. But it meant that everyone congregated around there. Yeah. And there was a second fact that the majority of Christians were illiterate. Yeah. And Jews were literate. And they were taught uh, from an earlier age. And they read the Talmud. And they were were allowed to bank and loan money. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? That's the the consequences of the fact that they were bankers, not just in Girona, but in in, in, um, the Jewish quarters across Europe by trade. Not just bankers, obviously, but they were bankers because I hadn't realised that money lending was um, was not permitted in the Christian communities, no, in the Catholic communities. Yeah. So therefore, the Jewish communities had a kind of monopoly on it. Yeah. And that had consequences, didn't it, when it came to the expulsion of the Jews. So mm. Jews arrived in the very late 8th century from the Roman diaspora from Jerusalem all across Europe. This is when they pitched up, I think, 794, the first mm. traces of Jewish settlement in Girona. But by f- the late 1490s, gone. Gone, lock, stock and barrel. And that I hadn't realised, that um, Judaism historically in Spain stopped, hmm. you know, Just and stopped much earlier than in other um, European countries. So it's kind of like lock, stock and barrel finished um, under the, and then especially you know, locked down under the... the uh, Spanish Inquisition, mm-hmm. where, which is just brutalised, yeah. you know. So that was in, that was of interest. I didn't realise yeah, it. it. Was it was fascinating? It was, it was and what was fascinating because it was all the power plays that were going on there as well was the fact that up to that point the Christian Church had readily endorsed the Jewish communities and wanted them to be part because yeah. it worked hand in hand for regards the literacy, the the banking skill, the 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 bonuses it gave to their their culture and society around it allowed it to exist. But when it came to the power plays and they were like, actually we could also wipe off all debts. That was the, that, so we're walking yeah. around, we're discussing all this tra- you know, tragedy, the tragedy of the yeah. expulsion of the Jews basically and Mikkel just pipes up because he's a businessman, he's got yeah. a business mind and he went, Yeah, what happened to the debts? Oh, that's quite a good point. So it's one it's one way of just wiping out your debt, you isn't it? Eradicate your debts. Just yeah. to get rid of the population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was interesting. But yeah, so that's... So, uh, uh, beneath it all, money, right? Beneath it all, money. Yeah. And I, I think that's... Uh, yeah, so that, that there's a lot of learning, a lot of things, which we'll, we'll move on to afterwards, because all of this yeah. is the stuff we don't know about Girona, really. Yeah. Um, do you remember when we were doing our Jira pod? And we started. I do, actually. <laughs> what about this morning at six thirty a.m. I got us out to get up. <laughs> we came up with. We had a whole riff about Italian riders and animal oh, nicknames. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. If, can we say it? We got a new animal nickname. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. a rider at the Dauphiné Peloton. Yes, yeah, say it. We can't put it in commentary, but we'll put it in the pod. Yeah. 
It's meant with a, a great deal of affection, I think, and respect. Um, well, it's, it's, we should probably give a little bit of a what we kept seeing over those first few stages yeah. was there you could see the peloton in distress, and the, the first indicator that it was getting hard was when I think it's number eighty one, one eight one would be dropped. Chris Froome. Chris Froome. Yeah, and it was. Uh, then, it's not just been at the Dauphiné. It's no, been, it's been every often. stage race but for it is, a year. But what's really interesting because it is at uh, that exact moment yeah. where it's going to get really hard. So it hasn't started yet. And so the, I won't say who came up with it. Me. You came up with it. You can take it then. I love it. Yeah. Uh, the canary. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's what you take down a mine to warn you that something, something bad is about to get dangerous. <laughs> so every time that Chris Froome gets dropped, you know the race is going to start soon. <laughs> but when Froome's still there and the canary hasn't fallen off the perch. Like, now we're still safe. We're good. We're fine. Everyone's Crack fine. Up. I'll go back and get some bottles. <laughs> So, it's the canary. It's the canary. So there was another canary moment. Uh, but anyway, in the end, it, it was the last opportunity for the sprinters, wasn't it? And they went around that little hairpin. But also, just, to, forgotten? just to actually know, yeah. in all fairness, on that day when the same day canary was christened, was the day he also said, I'm not going to win the Tour de yeah. France. So yeah. he's, he's aware of it and it's, it's jovial, but it is pretty pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's that's been one of the, actually the subplots of this race has been the canary. Yeah, there's the fact that he's now accepted he's not going to win the Tour de France this year. Yep, one kilometre to go on stage five, round a little hairpin. You're yep. getting a lot of affection from your dog there, aren't you? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, round a little hairpin. It was a little hairpin bend, wasn't there? It was a kilometre to go. That everyone, that they all had to lose a lot of speed and come out, and one rider yeah. appeared to go round it faster than. So again, others. this is this is uh, in many ways in hindsight. It's the first three stages where we saw Ineos Grenadiers doing this sort of bossing, but not interested in the stage win. It, it, it nurtured a complacency. So when they took over on, on stage five, uh, this is the day after the time trial, and at the front, after the sprinters teams and Bahrain Victorious had, had crumbled, it, I think everyone was like, okay, cool, we'll use them now. So Kwiatkowski came to the front, came out of the tunnel, they were coming down a big road, slight descent, and it came into a hairpin. And Kwiatkowski sort of peeled off and looked over his shoulder and G dived into the corner and obviously Kwiatkowski just then braked and slowed everyone behind yep. and G just went and it was like you were mentioning before about the when we were comparing Napoleon's forces and Chris Froome's attack over climbs this was one of those ones in the sense that Ines Grenadiers had actually just bred complacency so no one saw that coming Yeah, they were like oh they just want to keep it safe they're not racing for the win we'll use them to take us to the line because there was no one else off the front Yeah, whereas actually they were like no we're going to win today and and it was a little bit of a sort of revenge from the time trial the day before where it had been disappointing but then my theory on that is if Geraint Thomas had been peaking out was it max fitness in that time trial you wouldn't have that explosivity the next day because you do so much, you're capable of doing so much damage to yourself. You empty the tanks completely and you can still race really well, but you lose the fast twitch mm. because that's the first thing that you lose in in exhaustion post an effort like that. That was such a maximal fast twitch effort that very few riders pull off, mm. which makes me think that although he was trying really hard and gave everything he could in the time trial, he's not yet at top fitness yeah. because he can't empty the tank. So the fact he could then go into the next day and win from an effort like that, you think, oh, wow, you, there's a lot still to come from you. Well, that would be that would be consistent with a rider who's won the Tour de France and knows how to do it, wouldn't it? I mean, Very much so. so. But it was super cool. We we so rarely see that these days. 
and it's um it's kind of a little bit of a reminder and i don't know if it was absolutely planned because they're great racers they can make that decision in the moment reminds me a lot of the tour of romandy bond sprint the bradley wiggins one when he was oh yeah where all of a sudden yeah. he was on the front he was working but then he won the sprint just from leading out for ages because he was so strong and didn't realize that's right yeah and it felt a bit like g and he was kind of underperforming in that race and kind of there but then he was like whoa you know, okay, something's coming. Yeah, because it was such an anomalous result. Yeah, in the sense that's just somebody who's so fit and strong. Yeah, that they can pull didn't off. Mean some, to do didn't, that. didn't mean to win today. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was a, and that's amazing how you see again what Ineos Grenadiers—they're on a mission here. Yeah. To kind of re, to put themselves back on the the kind of pedestal of of they they are the team. Yeah. yeah. But they got their. The ass handed to them by Jumbo Visma last year. Yeah. And meanwhile, Jumbo Visma are, are choosing a different tactic. Yeah. Send their leaders away in training camps. They've yeah. sent the team here just to not get win. through, not win. Yeah. Deliberately. Yeah. Exactly yeah. that. Don't win. Just use yeah. it for miles. And Ineos Grenadier says, well, screw it. We'll win. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then props to the camera, the slow motion camera operator who picked up that wonderful shot across the line. I'm kind of visualizing it now of Sonny Colbrelli interacting with Thomas mm. and neither totally knowing. I think Colbrelli knew he hadn't won, but Thomas had his doubts, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, he did. As to whether or not he'd been caught on the yeah. line because the, the difference in the finishing speeds was actually immense as Colbrelli. Oh, so it came 10Ks an hour faster. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Cool stage. Um, now, one of our little waypoints that we stopped and I remember exactly where we were. We were on the river just around the corner from one of the entrances to Independence Square in the new town. And we were looking at the old town, kind of along the um, waterfront there, these very, very tall little townhouses, medieval townhouses, Mm. essentially, that have been rendered in various different colours. And there's a... I don't think you realise there's an authorised list of colours that you can paint your house. Yeah, And uh, you can't deviate from them. Mm. Um, And there we were discussing with Lara, who is Catalan herself, I think, um, we were discussing she kind of her mother's from south of Spain, but her father's Catalan. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we were discussing kind of the origins of this ongoing and as yet to be resolved terrible beef between Catalonia and Madrid, mm. um, which is it's I terrible. Mean, and that's not an understatement. It, just have, it is absolutely terrible, and it, it shows no sign of kind of really being resolved. I don't yeah. think there are still no, exile, fact, just yesterday, prisoners. Just yeah. yesterday, down we ha- where we had dinner on Saturday. Um, night, David. They were they were setting up for sorry on Friday night. They were setting up for a big um, outside the town hall. Uh, yeah. What looked like a a, a, a concert, a gig, they but, but a, 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 an amnesty fundraising really, event. Huh. So, and the the police were turning up, mm-hmm. you know, just to keep an eye on things. Yeah. So, Catalonian independence. Well, you has see not, it. The flags everywhere. Everywhere. And this is something again. Just to, the there's a flag that flies everywhere now in Catalonia. Uh, actually, we can briefly do this as well. Yeah, what, that, the, well, that's fascinating, isn't it? Well, first of all, the Catalan flag. Where does it come from? It was the the thing, blood fingers on a shield. It was after winning a battle. I can't remember where. We yeah, so flag. It's vertical red vertical stripes, stripes into into yeah. interwoven with yellow. So it's yeah. red and yellow and vertical it's stripes. To identify that so the I can't remember who it was now is. They literally just ran their fingers, and that's the, the story. Their bloodied fingers, the bloodied fingers down a, the yellow, and it was that's our flag. That's pretty. That's hardcore. pretty cool. Yeah. So that's. But when I moved here in two thousand and six, um, uh, that's the flag you see everywhere, which is just red and yellow thin stripes, uh, and and nothing else on it. And one day, a year on September the eleventh, 
they would fly a flag which has a blue triangle uh, with a big white star in the middle uh, that is then intersects with all those yellow and red stripes. Then it would come down. And even when ours, when Archibald was christened in his christening gown, we were putting a Catalan flag on one of our Catalan friends. We said, which flag should we put in? The, the one with the star or the, 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 the standard one? Oh, no, the standard one. Don't put the star in. We only do that once a year. And since the, the last few years and the, the whole ex- escalated independence uh, uh, battle has gone on, if you like, and narrative and stories and the collateral damage it's caused, that flag with the star has become the actual flag that is flown everywhere. And it's pretty shocking to see that difference. I mm. mean, uh, but turn I Turn the heat up on the whole thing. Turn the heat up on the whole thing. So yeah. the star represents, well, why the star? And that was really interesting, wasn't it? There yeah. are three colonies of Spain uh, which have a star in their flag, uh, which have uh, one way or another ceded independence from Spain. And they are Cuba... Puerto Rico mm-hmm. and one other. Can you remember? No, I can't. Oh, I can't remember the other one. No, uh, it's not Honduras. It might be. So, no, I can't remember. But there is one of them. Hondo- You're right. Honduras, possibly. Yeah. I can't remember. Possibly. But they all have the star in. Mm. And so, what what the Catalonian independence movement is doing by placing that star as a kind of gesture mm. is is the statement of intent yeah. to, to to go to claim independence. You know, I'd never even thought about it before. When you look at the um the the, the star spangled banner. It's red and white stripes and a... The star stars. represents liberty, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Joining dots, joining stars. Yeah. Um, but the beef goes right back to 1714. Well, it goes right back to... Uh, well, it goes right back. <laughs> it goes so complicated. I think we need another um, stage. Yeah. Should we have stage six? Six, yeah. Um, because uh, this was when uh, the race lead changed hands. Yeah, it did, didn't it? This mm. was where the yellow jersey of Lucas Pustelberger, who'd survived stage five, cracked. Mm. Lutsenko didn't. He finished yeah. in the group of favourites atop this kind of... It was the first. It wasn't a massively hard mountain stage and the final two Cat 3 climbs were, weren't too severe, were they? So quite a big group came to the line in the end. And what, what I loved about that stage, because we've been talking about in, this, in the previous stages, was how Ineos Grenadiers was reassuming its authority over the peloton. And I think I use the term peloton politics is the sense that they're kind of... A lot of it has to do with politics and that kind of... that that rule of, or we've just been talking about the history of Drona in Spain is that rule of authority. And and that's what Ineos Grenadiers are doing. But what was interesting on stage six was Movistar. They raced better than I've seen them race in a long time. We, we do take the piss out of them a lot from in the previous years of how they're, they're almost tactically autistic, uh, inept. Um, in the sense they're brilliant, but they just apply it in very where they see it, well, where it works, and it's there. They see things we don't bit, see. A little bit like what's the definition of madness? That doing the same thing, making the same mistake over and over again, yeah. or whatever you know, repeating the same. But mistake. that's what I mean because they're brilliant and they're genius, but they seem to always just be applying it in space that we don't understand. Yeah. And this is the first time they applied all that genius and brilliance and firepower to actually the race. Yep, and. They just took it over. They let the the kind of the the other teams do it. Even they took over Ines Grenadiers. Ines Grenadiers were doing their kind of buffering the race, controlling things. And then all of a sudden, when Movistar came on, it was to win. And they came on the final. They didn't really show themselves until the final 10Ks. And then it was just a a show of force. And we we were trying to figure out who's it for. And then it became obvious when Miguel Angel Lopez yeah. got on the front. Miguel Angel Lopez. Miguel Angel Lopez. <laughs> Superman. 
got on yeah. the yeah and um in the end Valverde would say I owe that victory to Superman <laughs> um, <laughs> so cycling isn't it <laughs> Superman yeah. Lopez so 41 year old Alejandro yeah, Valverde we, yeah we added a year yeah um in our commentary but he, I think he, he got crushed it and, and it was and any it's going to do is they then played the kind of the, the opportunistic card again trying to attack off Movistar in the final and Teo Gegenhardt did a great, great move yeah great move and, and he he did it and he was gone but then you that's when with I think 600 metres to go yeah. Valverde showed his card yeah and he just came out and it's before he started kind of accelerating to close down because so cool. the way you described eight, this in commentary yeah. is so cool he had about 8 metre gap Teo Gegenhardt off the front of what was left of that group and and Valverde suddenly came off the wheels and he did two pedal strokes and then he just did a flick over his shoulder to check. And within the, and I thought it, when I was watching it front on, it felt like he was looking for two or three seconds. It's less than a second he looks. But in that less than a second, he's read completely what's going on behind him and knew that no one was going to beat him. So all he had to do was beat Teo Gegenhart that was ahead of him. So then he just, from that flick, he went back and he thought, I'm in no rush to catch him. <laughs> he says, I'll just use him as my lead out man. Yeah. And so he just bridged up. So timed it. So when he got up to him was 75 meters to go and then kind of came out and then again, just gave one look at him and was like, you're done. And then cruised it to the finish line. And it was just, it was such a, a 41 year old way to win a race. Just absolutely the amount of information he was absorbing in tenths of a second or hundreds of a second it takes two decades of racing at top level to do what he did yeah and he had and that's what he can do when he's got the firepower he's just he just assimilates so much information at once and it was really cool to watch yeah um well he hasn't quite been uh, riding since 1492 but it feels like it Alejandro Valverde that was quite a good segue that was amazing you can take that thank you very much um but what has been brewing since 1492 is the beef between Catalonia and Madrid. Yeah, and again... And this I, is super uh, complex. This is super complex, but it's good you know you have a bit of passion well, about Austria-Hungarian Austria, empires. Austria-Hungarian empires. So, Spanish-Netherlands, mm, there was an alliance between Vienna and Madrid, mm. right? And um, then the Holy Roman Emperor, so the, the um, Austro-Hungarian Emperor, whose name I don't know, died. And there was, a, there was a question, because what happened to the Holy Roman Empire was all the various different stakeholders... And it wasn't just it was an allegiance, a massive allegiance of this kind of patchwork of different electors who would then elect the next emperor in mm-hmm. Vienna to sit in Vienna. So it was quite it was quite for a for a, a ridiculous kind of wobbly construction of um, of aristocrats, uh, you know, intermarrying and just deciding the fate of peoples across the world. It was actually also it had a, a surprisingly democratic element to it. So they would vote all the different regions of this colossal concern on who should be the next uh, boss in Vienna, who would have um, domain over all of the Iberian Peninsula, you know, the Spanish Netherlands and all of Central and Middle Europe, and right the way down into, you know, Venice and places like that. Who's, who's in charge? And um, the Catalan region had a very different take on who they thought should be the next Holy Roman Emperor. And they decided to back Charles II, who was the um, heir apparent in Vienna himself. Now, his big rival for the job was the French king, Philip V. And he was the chosen uh, candidate of, 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 of who? Of the 
keen of yeah, Spain. I uh, can't remember. Yeah, but just to, just a nugget on that. Why? Um, yeah, what was the reason why, why Catalonia chose um, Charles, Charles, Charles uh, and the Austro-Hungarians was because at that point Catalonia was still part of the kind of feudal Spain, Iberian Peninsula, Aragon, Castellón. You had Andalusia, and the capital of Spain was Sevilla, which was down south. And Sabia had the ah. had the kind of Sabia so was a capital. It was a capital, and it controlled all the. It was near Cordoba, so it's mm. a legacy of the Moors. But they controlled all the ports, and uh, Catalonia was not allowed to use Barcelona. That's for, right. So, so they went to, to use Barcelona as a port to serve the, this new industry they had across the Atlantic and was burgeoning across the rest of Europe. They had to pass everything via Sabia. Yeah. And so the deal was they took the business punt that if we go through Charles yeah, and Austria goes, he's like, I'll open up, I'll open up Barcelona. That's right. He, yeah. To buy their votes, basically. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, they backed the wrong horse. He died. He died. Yeah. And then they, 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 they going, ah, oh, now we've made ourselves unpopular with, with, uh, with, um, yeah. Spain. Yeah. And, uh, actually, no, he didn't die. He, he ended up having to fight off. Eastern forces. So yeah, I his, didn't get that bit. His so, focus was oh, gone. That's right. So there was an he was, uprising somewhere. There was an uprising, and then all of a sudden he had to put all his energy into defending. So he forgot about little Catalonia. He forgot about little Catalonia and the, the, the business deal he'd struck with for Bas taking, giving them back Barcelona port for all. So this is where it all starts. So yeah. I guess anyway, Philip V gets the job. Yeah. Right. And Catalonia is basically never forgiven. No, for, for that treachery from that moment on. Yeah. Right. Culminating, let's just jump forward. In 1714? 1714, yeah. September the 11th, yeah. the siege of Barcelona. Yeah. Barcelona capitulates, is forced to capitulate, beginning uh, the, basically, the as far as I understand it, the outlawing of the Catalan language yeah. and culture being suppressed. And it's, yeah, essentially it's all its rights. On the 11th of September, 1714. Because Catalonia had had one of the oldest democratic parliaments in uh, in Europe and it was just all eradicated and essentially you no longer can make your own decisions everything will have to pass through Madrid and so that's September the 11th in in Spain is very different to September the 11th in modern history with with the US and what happened in New York um in 2001 this is very much about uh 1714 and so although it's celebrated every year as Catalan National Day, it's actually the day that Catalonia lost all its power uh, within the Iberian Peninsula. Your dogs are just uh, chasing, chasing a forlorn, in forlorn hope of catching a Nissan 4x4, which has now disappeared. Yeah. Um, that's the first car we've seen come past. I know, it's nice. I come from Lewisham. This is deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I but think yeah, we've pretty much nailed that. Yeah, I think we did okay. Yeah, that's good. Might be a few inaccuracies. But I tell you, so, and just to jump before we get on to stage seven, yeah, is why the professional cyclists are here. Oh yeah, because that's the sort of latest bit, and and none of us came here for the history or no. knew much about Catalonia. In fact, when somebody said Girona, we would be thinking more about Genoa and Italy. It's a common misconception, yeah. that, isn't it? Girona, mm. yes. Where's that? Whereabouts in Italy yeah, is that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's like no, it's uh, not. <laughs> but it's this, it's this hidden treasure of a place. Oh look, yeah, that's my. Uh, it's my builder driving by and far local farmer. Um, uh, it's Johnny Welts. Uh, Johnny Welts in the early 1990s, Danish cyclist. Uh, he, he moved here when he was with Spanish team Onse. Um, and then he became a direct sportif of US Postal when it was in its really small before Armstrong. And so then he started kind of persuading riders to come and live here. Nobody knew where it was. 
And then when Lance Armstrong, George Hincapi, Levi Leipheimer, Dave Zabriskie, uh, Levi Christian Leipheimer, Leipheimer, Christian Vandervelde, that whole crew um, went on to US Post in the late 1990s. They had moved originally from Lake Como. They were living in Nice. I actually lived with those guys for a bit in Nice in the late 1990s. And then when the heat got so hard and France became kind of not a very good place for cyclists to live. post-Festina. Post-Festina. They were like, oh, ship out. And so that's where Johnny Welch said, come to Girona. And that's where it starts. So the, yeah, okay. So, so it starts in late 1990s and it was Johnny Welch that brought riders here. And uh, Jonathan Vorters had come here as well, I think off the back of, because he'd been racing in Spain. So he did it separate to that. So there were two kind of factions, yeah. two American factions. You had the Jonathan Vorters faction, which yeah. I was part of which when I came here in 2006, the, the US Postal Faction were starting to leave. Yeah. And that's when I became an owner of Slipstream, Jonathan Vorters, and I said, what well, I'd like is to have our whole team live here. And so we brought down 10, 15 riders. And yeah. then that's when it all began, 2007. 2008 is when it started to kick off. And then 2000, by 2014, cycling tourism began. And it's just been this kind of flywheel since then is now probably rightfully so the cycling capital of the world yeah it's it's um there are cafe there's one cafe in particular where they all hang out isn't it la fabrica there's la fabrica by christian meyer uh, espresso mafia there's all category there's yeah there's a load of them now and it's, it's it's changed the face i think for the better Girona. yeah when we came here it was all factions and cliques and now there's so many of us that it's kind of just sort of normalized yeah yeah and and that climb that we're looking at that we mentioned at the beginning rock corba has become this amazing kind of check if you could go on strava and check out the names on rock corba it's a roll call of the greatest cyclists in the Who's world number one is there actually is some kid that i don't know anymore that's Before that was james scary. knox yeah, yeah. it's a bit scary yeah. james knox i actually have videoed it i'll put a link in actually to a story about that because I, I was training james knox before he turned pro and i went with him and was following him and filming him the day he broke the record on there. Yeah, I remember that video. Yeah, yeah. yes, yeah. mental. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah. So that's a bit of the cycling history. So we we'll do that. That's I mean, done. as a as a, a schlug. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I as a schlug with a bit of a sense of history as well. I find and I've been walking around Girona a lot of this last week at night and day. Um, I find that I find just walking past Armstrong's flat kind of um, uh, yeah it's quite powerful actually and it's mm. quite dark mm. I mean to give you a context it's a it's just absolutely stunning he lives just around the corner from the Jewish Museum in the middle mm. of the oldest narrowest bit of, of yeah. the old town and and he used to live in this first floor apartment that went the kind of length didn't it, of the yeah which apparently inside is really quite grand and mm. wonderful but um just to feel that he lived there at that time in his life doing the things that he was doing mm. back then is kind of like I don't know, it's quite powerful, actually. Yeah. In its place, this, the, that particular, I mean, Girona, cycling, the connection with Girona is very different now. Mm. But to think that's how it kind of started is kind of... I never really thought it's it's like that. Yeah, it's true. And it's also, you have to remember when there was Girona, that's late 1990s, it had only been, there was still no tourism here. Mm. It was kind of, it would be a day visit from some random people at the beach. There was, so it was a proper, pretty run down. It's pretty, it was pretty kind of he was probably, basic. He was probably hiding out here, really. Basically, yeah. 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 And, but not just in a negative fashion. You, you could go out and even when I was here, nobody knew who professional cyclists were. They don't care yeah. about cycling here. The general public, it's football or motorbikes. Yeah. And so you could be winning Tour de France's and nobody's going to go, oh, can I have your autograph? Yeah. So you go into the cafe downstairs, sit there and, 
people would actually it would be paying respects rather than cameras or selfies. Yeah. Not the selfies existed back then. Yeah. But um and that was one of the reasons I think a lot of the professional cyclists came here was it felt like you were living a normal life because if you're in France or Italy, it's very easy to get wrapped up in the the kind of oh, cyclist professional or cyclista professionista, and yeah. you get free coffees. And here it's just done with real respect and, yeah. and loveliness rather than you're fetid because they just think it's quirky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Uh, which brings us to the last stage we can talk about because we don't know what's going to happen on stage eight. Yeah. So we'll just end on stage seven, David Mark yeah. Mark Padun. Mark Padun. Yeah, that was an amazing ride. Yeah, Even yeah. Pete Kenya sent us a message last he night. It's like, that was an amazing ride. What do we know about him? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know much. Pete, Pete's doing his prep. Pete, Pete's, Pete's is doing his prep. He's doing ITV his prep. cycling. I love it. <laughs> We're just kind of coming in and getting all the, the highlights. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was a... The way he dropped Kuss. Cause oh, Kuss. Well, Kuss is... I'm beginning to have my concerns about Kuss. Oh. I know. And he was he was pre-Remco. Yeah. And, and yeah. pre... Um, yeah, I know. I'm kind of, and, and no, elaborate that thought because I, I haven't expressed it to myself, but I, I maybe I am too. He's been given the option; he could do it today or yesterday, and he's he's got a total free reign because we just I was discussing that in the sense that Yumba Visma here on uh, Parentes holiday, um, so they're just here training and got free reign to do what they want. Whenever I see Sepp Kuss, one of the things we've loved about him is the fact he always looks so in control and so kind of everything's together. And the things seem to happen quite easily to Kuss. Yeah. You never see this grit, this yeah. kind of like, he's going to do something crazy. Yeah. Well, it either like that happens or it stage doesn't. that he won and he was glad yeah. handing all the crowd on exactly. the you know, it, was, it was just like that, didn't it? It's just like, yeah, it's just like cruisy. You know, yeah. And everyone's like, oh, Sepp Kuss, fine, look at him, he's amazing. And then it's like, brr. Yeah. And so I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe he's in the wrong team. Maybe he's on the wrong team, or maybe yeah. he's on the right team, but he's chasing the wrong goal. Oh, nice as well. Maybe yeah. he is actually Robert Hessing. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. And maybe, maybe that's that, it. Maybe that's he's Res- brilliant at he doing is. that last massive exactly. turn on the front. You know, maybe that's it. He is a, just a brilliant Dominic Manton and can have a great career as yep. being last man standing for your leader. Yeah, and uh, and that definitely seems to be more and more the way I see him racing. Yeah, it's he's really good at that. But give him his own. Yeah, it has to happen when his leader's there. Yeah, he gets that day off and he goes and does it. It's yep. almost he needs that. So Padun won the stage for the Ukraine and Bahrain victorious, super strong. And thanked Jesus apparently in his interview. Oh, did he? Yeah, That's nice. so he's got the faith. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, there's a the miracle of 1975 and the the, the foot. There's that you didn't know about that, did you? No. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So just up on the hillside behind the cathedral, there is a uh, shrine to a miracle that was officially recognised in 1975. As um, as being such, and it was a moment at which the heel of uh, the Lord, the imprint of the heel of the Lord, the bloodied imprint of the heel of our Lord, was found on a hillside, and uh, that has been verified as a as a miracle that happened in 1975. And um, yeah, there's a shrine just behind the cathedral. Why was I even talking about that? Oh yeah, Mark Padun and his faith. So that was pretty cool. Uh, but the the GC race was happening behind wasn't it and Richie Port had dragged a little group clear can't remember who was in it now 
but all eyes were on Richie Port. No, Richie Port. So what was interesting was that because it looked like Richie Port hit out quite early. And there was a part of me that thought he was in the classic set. So we discussed this. It was a racing foil. Yeah. Because a lot of the t- other teams were, were dominating. And even Ineos Grenadiers were running out. Dylan Van Baal popped. Rodriguez popped. Yeah. They were losing. So they were just down to Theo Gagan Hart, Geraint Thomas, and uh, Richie Port. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. it was all one there. We now know their tactic. If all the other teams have used up, what they'll do is they'll, they'll send one of their leaders up and yeah. force the race. Yeah. So Richie Port with, went with still a long way to go. Was it five, six, seven yeah. days? Five, I'd have said. Yeah. Five. And, and he, he went and it kind of thought, well, that's going to launch the race behind, but actually he took it and couldn't get Padun, who was doing an exceptional ride, but he did reel in Sepkus, everybody else and dropped the people he was with. And that last K, he looked so strong. It's almost yeah. as if he was there kind of doing what he was supposed to do as the, the tactic, but then with a K to go, he just was cut loose and it was very impressive to watch actually. Indeed. And, um, I don't know, stage eight, he's probably, when you're listening to this, probably won it, hasn't he? Probably yeah. won the Dauphine or he hasn't. Yeah. Um, and I don't think he's going to quite have enough. As Garrett Thomas now pilots Richie Port to another famous stage race win. Richie Port wins the Dauphiné. Alexei Lutsenko finishes in second place. And Garrett Thomas, battered and bruised, has done a wonderful job of work there for Richie Port. And he finishes in third place at the Dauphiné. What a climax. So I think to conclude our... Um, uh, Dolphin, our special podcast. dolphin special, our dolphin, our special. dolphin Girona special, is to actually speak to a, a, a Gironese. <laughs> is that how we call it? No, Gironese, Gironi, 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 Gironi. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. almost, almost, almost. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Christian Casals is from here. He is a pure Catalan. And yes, I am. And he can perhaps we've spoken, and there's always that ghost in the room. You can talk about places, but. Although we come and visit, we've not, we're not born and bred. Mm-hmm. So just, uh, we thought it'd be nice to close about what Drona is to you and also the relationship with you and Ned and you're a different type of person. So, uh, I'll, I'll hand I've, it over to Ned. Yeah. You are not just from Girona. You are Girona. Yes, I am. Yes, I think so. Yeah. You know, that's a, a place where I am born. I grew here. I mean, all my friends, many friends. I know many people in in Girona, and I grew up here, you know. And uh, I I really love it. Now I know the place is the place that I want to live. Yeah. Now you know, when I was young, uh, I was against. I spent some time against the city, and because it's a small city that everybody knows each other, and I said, well, this I, I don't want, I don't want, I don't like it. Yeah. I need to get away for a while. Yeah. But now, uh, for me, is is a paradise. I mean, yeah, because it's a good place to live, to grow your family. It's quiet, and I love, I love the the surroundings of the city. It's it's perfect life for me now. Because you you showed me, you took me on a little guided tour a few days ago before your operation on your leg. Yeah, um, Christian smashed his leg up very badly three years ago, and is just recovering. Um, but, uh, yeah, you showed me the restaurant above which, you know, you grew up and your dad had a restaurant on yeah. the Rambla. Yeah, well, actually, I just had I show you a little because we need more space. And, uh, and you're walking uh, very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Actually, I'm, I'm like a snail. 
And you showed me that, but you showed me your dad's restaurant where you grew up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah born there actually. You're born there on the Rambla in Girona. Yeah, it's Rambler. pretty special. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Mad. And your mum, up until really recently, just a few yeah. months ago, she had a sure. like a really prominent yeah. furniture shop in the middle of the old town. Yeah, anyone who's been to Girona will have walked past it a hundred times. Yeah, so, for yeah. sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, yeah. Uh, We've been quite successful in the city, yeah. and but we've been really tough workers also. You know, my my family showed me uh, how to work hard. You know, because and they start from from zero, and just step by step and keep keep contents. You know, and and one day you will grow and you will enjoy everything. What is what is for you when you you travel around? Because I remember one of the things cause we were talking about my children who are becoming Catalan. And you learned Castellano later <laughs> when you went when you went to London. Ah, that's correct. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It, but yeah. it's true. Christian it's learned true. Spanish when he went to London. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. That's correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's true because and you just so people get a bit of perspective. How different Spanish and Catalan yeah. are. How distinct yeah. they are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and my children will be like that as well because they're Corneada yeah. Terry. They're full blown Catalan, but they got English at home. But Castellano yeah. is difficult difficult for them. They're having to learn. We got a tutor to help <laughs> them. And, but the, the, what I've noticed with all my friends and especially Christian's peer group, and we're the same age, we're yeah. a year apart and yeah. all our friends are, uh, my Catalan friends in that same group, none of them end up leaving. Mm. Uh, they all come back mm. and they've got such a huge network here, which seems to be this lovely thing about this, uh, this place yeah. is people go, they always come back or you it's, it's just such a, as you said, it's such a wonderful. Yeah. And this isn't, by the way, we'll probably put a, a caveat at the, at the beginning of this podcast. This isn't an advertising for this this region. It's just. Yeah, we're not sponsored. A, we're not sponsored. Everyone knows that. Melinda Apples. Melinda we're still, Apples. Looking, <laughs> we're still looking for that sponsorship. Yeah. But this is this idea. And that's why I thought it would be a lovely finish for Christian, because you also brought in, so everyone knows, with the ITV crew, uh, where Ned and I work. Christian was producing it and came in and was the line producer and did the whole thing. Had this um, in, insane was crash, hit by a car and died basically. And has spent oh. three years building his, back his life. He's come back. He's come back. So like another miracle. Another yeah. miracle. After the 1975 yeah. miracle of the heel, the bleeding yeah. heel. And the, yeah. the, you know, this is the... Yeah. The but one thing, the, the one thing that... Um, the, the closing of this was, was just, you are one of the most international people I know. You're so open-minded yeah. and yet you're just part of the Girona crew. <laughs> so, yeah, <and laughs> you describe it well, yeah. You know, because it, it's true. That's why I, I decided to, to get away for a while when I was, uh, when I was, uh, in my twenties, because I realized, you know, this is a small village. It's a more, small world. And then, it was something inside me that was saying, "Hey, you have to be get out of here for a while to to know how the world is, you know. Because if not, maybe you get confused, you know, because you think that that's the real work." And, and I said, "No, you need to open your mind and to meet people, and and that helps you to understand the world and and the people and and the problems that happens around." And and well, and I did it, and I'm so happy, you know, because now I see the different. My way of thinking has changed completely because I understand many f different things 
of the other people when they they speak and they you know open mind actually. Should we test? I, I'm going to test him on his knowledge of Girona because he's. Go for it. I'd love this. I, I want to hear right. it. How many times? <laughs> how many times did the French well, lay siege to Girona? Do you know what that means? T- try and take yeah. the city. How many times? I think three. <laughs> no, uh, sorry. Now I, I will fail. <laughs> so tell him. Tell him. Seven hundred and eighty-four times. <laughs> right. Okay. That's not. I'm not. Don't that's true. It's a fact. It's not a floating fact. It's a fact. And finally, my other question to you is, how did the top of the Saint Filiu, Saint Filiu yeah. Basilica, how yeah. did the top of the tower disappear? Wow. Oh, come on. I knew that. Before the crash, I knew it. Yeah, I heard from it. Someone kill it? No, <laughs> someone did kill it. God killed it, ironically. Uh, it was a lightning strike. So, fork of lightning. Ah, right. And yeah, it toppled yeah, it off yeah, and yeah. they never rebuilt it. But it kind of, it's the real characteristic of the Basilica now. I'm and sorry, you, I will go to school tomorrow. To- but also, I didn't realize this. The San Filiu um, Cathedral was a graveyard for the Romans outside of the walls. Yeah? Yeah, I just, I learned all this with Ned. Oh. I know where I have to spend more time with if, you. If eh? you have yeah. any other questions about Girona, <laughs> yeah, call you, I can, you call me. Yeah, call you next time. Because I know pretty much everything now, so we're yeah. good to go. Well, Get well, Christian, with your leg. Thank you. Out. We'll see you back on the Tour de France before two. I hope so, man. I, I wish, I wish, I, I dream about, yeah. you know. It's, yeah, I think I will. And David? Richie Port won the, the Criterion du Dauphiné. I know. He's going to win the Tour de France. He might win the Tour de France. And you know what? There's just a, a small chance we're still trying to work it out. And maybe uh, well, we, can do a, that we could do a podcast through the Tour de France. Podcast. Never strays France. Re- never strays Port. Never strays Port. Never strays Port. <laughs> never strays Port. Never strays Watch your space. Subscribe to this excellent podcast and you'll be the first beneficiary. That's my commercial message to you. And thanks for listening to this. It's a very long podcast, this one will be. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm-hmm. 